I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. When I woke up this morning, I went to open my blinds and the cords snapped to my hand. So when I went to fix that, the blinds came out of the wall and showered the floor with plaster. And when I went to hoover up the plaster, my hoover exploded. And I then just sat there for about 25 minutes. Anyway, I'm in a terrible mood. Can we record the podcast, really please? Is. Intro music goes here. Nick, again, we apologise for what we're about to put you through. <laughs> this is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the Gap. Hello, I'm John Elledge and this is Skylines, the Cinemetric Podcast. I'm here again with my colleagues, Nikki Wolf and Sarah Manavis. About three minutes ago, I said to one of them, do you know how to like put the mics up? And they said, oh no, I've never learned to do that because then people ask you to do stuff. So rather than publicly shaming them, I'm going to leave it hanging so that you think it's both of them. Because it would literally, I mean, like the other one would definitely have said the same thing if push had come to shove. So I'm in a great yeah. mood. Teachable moment, don't learn things. That is true. That's what women get tricked into doing everything in life because they so feel forced the to learn. Did that happen to me? How come I'm the guy who has to do everything? Maybe you should ask for some help. Anyway, as we record this, it's Friday, February 1st. It's snowed a bit in London, but not a huge amount. But, you know, in other parts of the world, such as I know the US Midwest, it's basically under about. It's like minus 30 or something out there, isn't it? It's incredible. So we're going we're gonna to talk about extreme weather. Sarah. What's going on in the Midwest? I think, I think we've all, hang on, immediately just run into the fact that we speak either Celsius or Fahrenheit, but I don't think either of us speaks both. So I speak both. So it's 50, it's minus 52 it's, so the So the Celsius you, is actually minus, it's been recorded to be minus 46 overnight, was the coldest in Chicago. Isn't that somewhere around the point at which Fahrenheit and Celsius are the same? That's it minus does, yeah. 32. So, it's, so what, do they dovetail out the other way after that? Or? I yeah. don't yeah, because yeah. one degree Fahrenheit is smaller than one degree Celsius. So hang on, do you do you speak Fahrenheit? I love that I you guys yeah. don't know how what the hell you got so, All right, so this isn't this isn't specifically what this podcast was. No, about, but this, this is, is exactly my, the kind no, of this shit is that the listeners will like. So yeah, let's do. Here's, let's do this. Here's my running thesis on why Fahrenheit is better than centigrade. I'm with you on this already. So there's three different temperature ranges. Don't centigrade, fucking centigrade, talk about Kelvin. Is, well, I mean, Kelvin's useful for science, right? Like, it's not really useful for anything other than we science. We need to talk about Kelvin. We need to... There we go. That was good, John. It's the um, name of a book. I didn't invent that. But uh, centigrade, which is based around the boiling temperature of water, is useful for cooking. Like it's useful for when you want to know like what something should be in the oven for uh, for how long so that it boils or like whatever. 
it's not very useful for working out whether or not you're going to need a jacket today because the range of like human temperature goes from about zero to like 32 and that's not very granular in terms of working out whether you need a jumper or a slightly warmer jumper whereas fahrenheit zero to like 30 is cold 30 to like 40 is damn cold 40 to 50 is like a bit chilly 50 to 60 is like mild like springy weather yeah and then 60 to 70 is like warmish 70 to 80 is like pretty hot and then 80 plus is like really hot well and also it's just there's more numbers like when you like there's there's more degrees involved in fahrenheit like for every one degree celsius it's like two degrees fahrenheit i think not quite two degrees but it's almost i'm doing a very expressive hand gesture at the moment (laughs) i'm getting very into it but i do feel very irritated about this because i think it is much more specific and so the fact that it can be 13 degrees or it could be 17 degrees and that's like a wildly different set of temperatures that really pisses me off but okay like so two things about this firstly the i think i'm right in saying that like we all know that like centigrade Celsius is like, you know, freezing point of water to boiling point of water is zero and a hundred. I think zero and a hundred in Fahrenheit is the freezing and boiling points of salted water or something weird like that. Mm, and that's weird and no. unintuitive. No, there's no, definitely no, no, something no. like I've that. I've been in New York when it's been a hundred Fahrenheit and I don't think any water would boil. Let me put salt in it. hundred Fahrenheit is about 35. There is some logic to it originally. Maybe I've got that wrong. There's some logic to it where it's like... But this is deeply unintuitive. Like it I mean, comes it doesn't, from it doesn't a particular what it, set of chemicals. It doesn't matter what it originally is. The way to remember it is that, like, in terms of when you're going out that day, zero is cold. But, but is like, hot and but this is, is this between. brings me to my other point. It's like I do not understand Fahrenheit. To understand what a temperature in Fahrenheit means, I have to translate it into Celsius. It's not a decision I've made. I can't understand kilometers either. I have to translate them into miles. But there's nothing about the number thirty-five degrees that implies to me that's going to be. Hot, but in Celsius that is hot because it's just over a third. Yeah, but how of the did way you get like this? You grew up in this country where it's all Celsius. Well, I've been in America six years, remember. And also, it's just so easy to like once everyone's talking in it, you just go into. Yeah, Fahrenheit I think it is it's that it's easier. like all of the temperatures are like almost personified when you talk in Fahrenheit in the U.S. Like you don't talk about like you talk about the sixties or the fifties. Like you talk about a fucking decade, yeah. but it's like the temperature, and you're like, oh, what's it like outside? Oh, it's in the sixties, and you know, hey, you're not going to need a jacket. But if it's like, oh, it's the forties, ah, you. Should put on some socks i don't know if it's in what... the 20s oh shit like oh it's gonna be yeah. cold someone outside. in england it's like i don't know what that means i would have to translate <laughs> it into it's, it's, it's like, so easy it's a zero it. to a hundred scale where a hundred is hot and zero is cold yeah, What's but, like, you keep saying hot and cold as if these are in some way scientific measurements but it's not about not. scientific measurements we're not trying to like it's about how sweaty or or chilly you're gonna be yeah how big a jacket do you need <laughs> or how hard your nips are gonna be yeah. <laughs> but the, i don't know if that's that city measuring appropriate <laughs> the fact we've been recording this podcast for 10 minutes we've had like three different personal stories and a lengthy digression on how temperature scales work without getting to the actual topic we originally came here to discuss is the, the most city metric thing that's ever happened in the whole history of the universe so that's fine so i would like to say something about the london weather and this is something i felt for both london and edinburgh where i also lived in the uk and i understand it and people on twitter are like oh then it's different in canada and america you get real snow but the thing is is like the fact that there can be like a light dusting of snow and there's like a bit of sludge on the ground and like no one has salt to stop it and the whole thing it's like oh shit what are we gonna do like people are literally gonna die over something that's like super normal and but really not, not that super normal that's well, why we don't invest over something that's not actually as like dramatic 
I guess. And that's the thing, yeah, yes. It's not dramatic. But and the so reason we don't have the equipment is because we don't get enough snow to justify the investment. We don't have snow plows for the same reason. But yeah, it snows I'm for not like saying maybe snow a week plows. a year. I'm saying like year. bag of salt. Also, to be fair, I haven't seen anyone like panicking for this particular snowfall. I haven't seen You haven't been watching BBC closed. Breakfast. Oh, the airports have closed. They're in like, Shippenham, it looks like fucking hell on earth. But they always do It looks like Siberia and Shippenham. There was a big snowstorm. I'm in about touch. 10 years I watch ago. BBC Breakfast every morning. Where is Chippenham? Uh, Southwest. Yeah, it's it in Wiltshire. There was a big snowstorm about. Can I maybe get to the end of this sentence? There was a big snowstorm about ten years ago. Um, like all the newscasts kept trying to sort of make out that like people were panicking and like on the verge of like you know, and just everyone was having a really good time. And this went on for a month. Like Charlie Brooker took the piss out of this extent. Now I've got to the end of this sentence. It wasn't a great sentence. I'm going to be honest. I mean, once school's closed, did they tell you what happened to my blind this morning? It's been a long day. <laughs> once, once it snows enough for schools to close, you're either on the one hand, like schools and work to be off. Like you're either on the one hand, like having a great time because you're off work or school, or you're a parent. You're a journalist. It snowing is never going to be enough to get you off work again. <laughs> no, but I can work from home. Exactly. So like you'll still be, but that's still working. Yeah, yeah Nikki, isn't it? <laughs> Says Nikki, whose job I mean, is remote to, all I mean, of to the be, time. To be honest, like coming into the office means that I'm like sat at a desk with people watching me scroll through TweetDeck for most of the day with like some brief bursts of intensive activity. But that's I mean, that's, working that, I mean, that is like, everyone's job, not exactly. even just in journalism. I think that's everyone's and job. And it's this wider point of like Other the problem like with offices in general, which is that like you come in and have to like perform work more than you have to actually do your job, whereas you can like mu- you can work much more efficiently if no one's watching. Well, I was talking with our colleague Indra about this just this afternoon because I think that my boyfriend works really solidly from like 9.30 to like 3 without a single break. And then he's pretty much done for the day. And I feel like I could do all of my work, like, you know, with those extra hours where I'm just like, you know, let's check Twitter and see what like everybody's up to there. I think if I just binged and literally did nothing but like literally stare at a Word document for like seven hours a day. Can we get back to the topic we came here to discuss? Yes. Oh, no, but I, what I was going to say, which is very oh, sad. Oh, God, it's not going to be about the topic, is it? It is it's about the topic. I was going to say is it, it was very pitiful for me. It was the first time I ever was like, I think I had the mind of a parent because I'm a dog parent. And I, <laughs> <laughs> I was watching my poor little dog trying to take a shit this morning while she was sliding around on all the sludge and the ice and the snow. And it was very sad. And I thought someone needs to salt these roads. So my dog can stand still and get all of her shit out of her ass. That also wasn't a sentence. It was worth getting to the end of if if we're honest with ourselves, was it? Please mind the gap between the train and the platform. So breaking into that conversation, I am back once again at the Centre for Cities for our Ask the Experts section with Head of Policy, Paul Swinney. Paul, you are drinking out of a Sunderland-themed mug, I've just noticed. Well, yes, I am, and it's, uh, it makes the tea taste even better, and it's nice to be able to you know, remind yourself of home whenever you, you take each slurp. You know, I was very confused by the fact there's Farringdon and Hendon on there, but there's also Washington, there's Seaburn, there's Hilton. So, you know, it's not... really, I just recognise some of those places from the Time Away Metro map is all I'm saying here. So, anyway, we are going to talk about, well, we're going to talk about austerity. You guys have just had uh, your, big, your big annual report out, Cities Outlook 2019. And this year, you looked largely at the question of cities' finances. What did you find? Did you find that they're all that it's boom time? Everyone, all local government bodies are doing pretty well for themselves, and everyone's in a great, great state. Yeah, I mean, I think local government is awash with cash, and everybody's uh, is, is well aware of that. You know, what's interesting about I think the the process over the last two or three years is once upon a time, um, austerity was the most politically con- contentious 
policy of the 21st century, and yet that's just been completely swamped by discussions of Brexit over over the last couple of years. So I thought we thought it was important to, to look at this topic, not only because of that, but also because we've got the spending review coming up this year as well, where the Chancellor will set out how much money different departments will get. Now, what's really interesting within this is, you know, eight or nine years of, of austerity so far, is that local government has been the hardest hit of any public sector department. You know, it's cuts of around about 50 to 60% in terms of marketing money that they get from central government. That's in the, the context of, say, the NHS seeing a real terms increase, in national aid seeing a real terms increase. You know, in order to protect some of these areas, local government has really gotten in the neck and has, has shouldered far more than I think you would expect to be acceptable in terms of sort of, you know, austerity. And so when John Osborne said, you know, we're all in it together, he definitely wasn't talking about local government and he definitely wasn't talking about certain parts of local government as well, which I'm sure we can come on to. So the figures you just named there were like 50-60%. Those are the figures that people tend to talk about when they say oh, local government has seen cuts of X. Those are the kind of numbers you hear. One of the things that struck me about your City's Outlook report was that the cuts you found have not been quite that deep. Like the biggest cut was Barnsley, I think, which was 40%. Don't get me wrong, it says terrible things. We've reached a point where you see a cut of 40% and you think, oh, that's actually not that bad. But nonetheless, that is less bad than I expected it to be. What's... What explains the disparity? You've been desensitised, I think, over the last yeah. eight or nine years. So, Stockholm syndrome. <laughs> quite. So in terms of the, the figures of, of cuts that central government have put in place, that's cuts to grant. So that's cuts that to the, the amount of money that central government passes on to, to local government. Now, of course, you know there are other sources of income for local government. So there's this council tax. There's um, a little bit more of business rates now because they've changed the system slightly. There's also money raised from sales fees and charges, so charging for access. And there's also money raised in this so this weird other thing that local government writes down. It's called um, other income. And that's income from non-central government departments like the NHS, for example, or the National Lottery, or probably a whole host of other things that get thrown in there as well. Now, the reason why we were interested in looking at that sort of whole gamut of, of spending funded by these different, different income streams is because we wanted to look at how services have changed for people who live in different parts of the country. So, you know, we could talk about, have a technical discussion about what, how sustainable is local government, you know, which councils might fall over. But actually, I think there's a bigger element here that, you know, austerity ultimately is applied to people. And we want to say, well, how has that played out across the country and how has that affected people on a, on a day-to-day basis in terms of, you know, spending on your museums, parks, libraries, social care, how clean are your streets and investigate that element of it. Sure. So let's kind of drill down into it then. If you're kind of looking at these councils that have seen cuts of, you know, 20, 30, 40 percent, how have services changed? What's what's different from 10 years ago? It's very interesting, I think, to see the the makeup of how councils spend their money. So in terms of the cuts, what we've seen is that there's certainly evidence that I think councils have cut back office functions and try to keep frontline services going, which is very, very commendable. But then when you look in within the individual service lines, what you see is that social care is very much being protected. That's not a surprise. Local government has to deliver that by law. And we've seen growing demand for it as well. Social care is largely care of the elderly, right? Well, it's more than that. You know, it's, it's, it's children's um, social care. Obviously, some of that's been in the news in recent years. But also, a lot of uh, even adult social care is much more than just el- the elderly population. We think that's straight away, but it's mental health, it's people's learning difficulties, etc. You know, demand for those services has been on the rise in recent years. So what you've seen is that big cuts to, to local government and cities, especially within that, which we can come on to. So they've had to deal with these cuts to, to money coming from central government, but also having an increase in demand for social care. 
So then what you're doing is your more limited money is actually then being funneled even more into a certain service line to deliver these services for very vulnerable people. Now the upshot of that means that all the other stuff that local authorities provide because they are custodians of place, not just providers of social care, that's the stuff that's happening to cut back because ultimately you're not going to be taken to court for not providing cultural events or not keeping the streets as clean as before, cutting the grass in the way that you did in the past. And so it's those other areas that have really been squeezed. That's stuff that you know local authorities don't have to provide, but actually is pretty important in terms of you know, the fabric of a place. Mm, place making and so on. Yes, the precisely. Civic identity is kind of so bound up in you know, keeping places nice and providing cultural events and so on. Let's talk about the geography of the cuts, because they've not been felt evenly, have they? Some places have seen deeper cuts than others. Indeed. I think what's interesting is the, the story that I think we've heard over, over recent years is one of, of county councils really struggling. You know, Northamptonshire's been all over the, the news. Somerset has been in trouble as well. And is that because they're the ones, the upper tier authorities are the ones lumbered with social care, basically? So, so yes, they are, they are responsible for social care. But at the same time, actually, we have had some extra grant going into social care in, in recent years. Now, this isn't to say that you know county councils or, or more rural authorities haven't had it hard. I mean, again, we've got to stress that all of local government has been really hard hit and the hardest hit department of any public sector department. But when it comes to actually looking at the figures, it's been urban authorities that have actually been hardest hit. You know, the size of the cut in, in cities has been twice as large as what it has been in, mm. in elsewhere in Britain. But then even then within that, there's a geography, which is it's cities in the north of England that are particularly being hit hard. So if you think about austerity, local government is being hit the hardest of any, any public sector body. Within that, cities have been hardest hit. And then within that, it's been cities in the north of England in particular that have shouldered the burden of austerity and been hit the hardest. As you said, Barnsley, hardest hit in terms of absolute cuts. Liverpool, hardest hit in terms of cuts on a per capita basis. Places like Doncaster and Wakefield up there as well. And the geography very much is the north of England in terms of, in terms of the burden. So I think we obviously had to do something about public sector finances in 2010. Cities in the north of England have more than done their, their fair share, really put their, uh, their shoulders to the, to the whatever the phrase is, you know, and... I'm enjoying this <laughs> and, and, and really sort of, you know, played their part to throw in another cliche. But I think enough's enough now. I think when it comes to the spending review, we have to reflect this, that, you know, local government has been hammered, but, you know, cities in the north of England in particular have really been hit hard, really played their part to help sort of improve public sector finances and that needs to be recognised. Just one final question on this. Like something you like, you hear a list of names like Doncaster, Barnsley, Liverpool, Wakefield. What they all have in common, apart from being slightly down the hill cities in the north of England, is they tend to vote Labour. And like looking at the map, it's not it's not across the board, but fairly like there does appear to be a correlation between places that tend to vote Labour have taken fairly deep cuts. Like even in the south of England, London has taken deeper cuts. Than many of the smaller cities around it, London votes tends to vote Labour. The smaller cities around it tend to vote Tory. Like, how cynical should we be about this? <laughs> like, is it? Like, I assume it's not simply a, a matter of like the, the government looked at places of voting record, but like, is it? Is there like some correlation with like the kind of places that tend to vote Labour also have the kind of populations that have seen the biggest cuts? Like, how does this work? Yeah, so it's definitely those places that have got high levels of deprivation in particular that have, have been hit harder by the cuts. Yes, they tend to vote Labour. I, however, think that it was more government ineptitude rather than any particular sort of malice as to why we see the geography that, that we see. So 
the way the cuts were applied was in 2010, government said, you know, we've got to apply a cut. And let's say they said, we're going to apply a cut of, let's say, 20% to local government grants or grant that government gives to, to local government. And everywhere is going to take this 20% cut to their grant. And on the face of it, that seems quite fair. Everywhere is going to show a 20% cut. However, the problem is, um, like I said earlier, you know, government grant is not the only source of income that local authorities get. So you have got things like council tax, but the business rates now, sales fees and charges, and, and this magical other income area too. So if you then look at a place like Hull, for example, 50% of its income-ish comes from central government grant. So actually it's pretty reliant on central government grant. If we instead say look at a place like Worthing, we say it's around about 25%. So if you then say, oh, take, okay. yeah, so if you take a 20% cut to 50% of your budget, that's actually a much deeper cut than a 20% cut to just 25% of your budget. And if you've got a large council tax base, you can raise more money, you can offset some of these, uh, some of these cuts as they come through too. There was also a second element that there were also a, you know, a whole host of one-off grants that local authorities got. They were tend to be skewed towards cities in the north of England because that's where the biggest problems are. A lot of these were sort of cut with a stroke of a pen in 2010. So again, you know, all these grants were, um, were scrapped. It so happened that the geography of those were that it was cities in the north of England that were more reliant on it. Interestingly, the government did change its approach in around about 2015, where they said, oh, actually, we recognise we made a bit of a mistake here, and they stopped applying this uniform cut to government grant. However, interestingly, they haven't reversed that. While they sort of <laughs> the stem the blood flow, you know, it hasn't sort of improved the picture, and right. that's why we then continue to see this geography if we look over the whole period. Okay, well, thank you very much. I, I have learned something here today. I hope the listeners have too. Thank you, Paul. My pleasure. Please mind the gap between the train and the platform. 2014 global news story style kind of, you know, snowstorm. And essentially, it makes for like really good like, oh, look at Chicago, the waves have frozen mid crest on like Lake Michigan. And like, oh, look at how there are snowbanks and they're having to set fire to train tracks. But essentially, like people's people die. A eh? 110 people died in 2014. I think, yeah, more than 10 people have died this time around after like three days of it. The whole city stops like a huge major like one of the biggest cities in the US literally is at a standstill and can't do anything. And it's apparently very eerie and creepy. It's like if you were walking down Oxford Street at 4pm on a Saturday and no one was there. So what happens? Well, have you well, been so, just, there so for context of like I was what minus there. 52 degrees Fahrenheit like actually is, one of the most illustrative 
photos I saw come out of this was someone who'd like made a bowl of noodles, gone outside with a fork, lifted it up, and then just let go of the fork. And in the time they'd lifted it up, the noodles had frozen enough that it kept the fork there. Well, I'm demonstrating it with my hands. That just <laughs> might just make it for great radio. You I get was... frostbite after five minutes in that kind of time. Actually, apparently in Chicago now, you can get frostbite in under 60 seconds. Jesus. I mean, um, that's like nuts. I was there, like, because I was in Ohio, which was like not hit as badly as Chicago. And I was actually in Chicago before this, in 2013, 2014, that winter. I mean, I was in Chicago just before it happened. And then in Dayton just as it was happening. But my dad and my sister, because I left a bit early, but they were sending me videos of them boiling a kettle, going outside, throwing the kettle water into the air and it instantly turning to snow. Like the second it went outside, it's absolutely mad. Like it honestly, it's like insane. This is literally incomprehensible to me. I just can't imagine this. Yeah, it's bonkers. (laughs) Sorry? You've never heard of a kettle before. It's like a machine that you boil water in. I enjoyed that, Nikki. I know that John's like enjoying it, but I'm enjoying it. I'm here for it. It's pretty insane in Chicago. And like the public schools have closed or the state schools, whatever, public schools in the US. But the, the, the idea, because Chicago, not to be like incredibly grim about it, because Chicago has such bad homelessness, especially amongst like literal children, they never close the schools. Like even like even in, you know, multiple feet of snow, ice everywhere, like they would still keep the schools open because so many kids don't get food other than at school. So the fact that they have now closed it is a pretty big deal. I have a lot of family in Chicago, so that is why I've been there before. And it is honestly like it's so hard to describe how cold. Like it's just you walk a minute and you actually feel like you're ready for death like it's so cold outside even if you're wearing like a parka and a, like a ski mask um, even in which... like a non-polar vortex time like she can't go in well, a normal yeah, winter exactly. it's just like like the wind partly because of the way the city's designed it's very kind of grid like even more than new york like the wind just kind of funnels down yeah. the avenues and it slices straight to the bone like you're right it doesn't matter a thing what you're, like i had this huge ski jacket on and it's just like it went through it like a hot knife through butter. It's just crazy. Well, when I had friends like move to Chicago, whether it was for university or work or anything like that, they were like, you think you know what a coat is and then you move to Chicago and you learn what a f- coat is. Like yeah. you do not understand like the level of cold. And it's true. Like I remember when I landed in Chicago in 2013, when I was just going to spend Christmas there with my mom's family. I got out of the car in a parking lot of a Chipotle. Call back to our other episode about other <laughs> about fast food, which you can listen to on Acast or wherever you get your podcast. And I just the walk from going into the Chipotle to get my burrito from the car and back. I honestly, I was like, I have not experienced this before. This is unlike anything I've ever felt in my whole life. I am so f- cold. I actually got very violent food poisoning from that Chipotle. Um, very oh, sweaty evening not, for like, me. The press team at Chipotle is going to notice this podcast. <laughs> And they're going to be like, we're telling people we have listeria in our chicken. I'm not sure I've ever been below about minus five at the outsides. I'm back in centigrade here. Yeah, that's fine. London doesn't get below freezing that often. That's kind of why I like the weather in the UK. And it doesn't get too hot either. Well, this year was horrible. And we don't have air conditioning, and I think that matters. That, yeah, we yeah. don't have air conditioning for the same reason we don't have sauna. Yeah, exactly. Just, we're not set up for anything other than this kind of like grey twelve degrees. Just that, yeah, the sine wave yeah, doesn't exactly. have big enough peaks or troughs for it to be yeah worth it, which is good. I mean, that's what you want in a city. I mean, yes, and no. I kind of don't want that. I sort of want like when you're a kid and you have like picture books and they show like you know in winter there is snow everywhere, in summer it's sunshine, and what they don't show is that all four seasons. Are grey and boring and that's kind of the climate I'm living in I, I mean have what to do you admit... expect with London John 
Like the London is famous for being grey and boring. I didn't choose to be here. Like this is they just call where it the I big am. smoke. A grim. But as someone who grew up with very traditional seasons, I had incredibly hot, like thirty-five degree summers, uh, Celsius summers, and like getting down near, you know, minus yeah, five, minus ten degrees Celsius winters. I do quite like just the reliability of UK weather. I can go outside during any season and I can know like within a certain amount of bounds I'm not going to feel too uncomfortable like because I'm just always prepared for it okay let's go to the other extreme what's the kind of hottest everyone's been that's a good question um so it's I mean, difficult for me I would say it was probably my early 30s <laughs> <laughs> how long were you planning that John heard me say the coldest he heard you say he heard himself say the coldest I've ever been is minus five and he's been sitting here watching us assholes planning. Talking about <laughs> bullshit seasons, and he's been cooking on that. I honestly didn't plan that because that would be unbelievably pathetic. <laughs> um, but I, so like, we, we had a, a, an incredible heat wave in London in 2003. Do you remember this, Nikki? You're, you're younger than me. Were you uh, Yeah, the, I, th- I remember there was like a heat wave in like 2000 and. The 2003 one went like on for like 13. Month, I think there was one in 2008. The 2003 one was literally killed like, you know, tens of thousands of people across Europe. It just. Tens of thousands of people. Yeah, they're not like literally like burning up on the street. But if there is a bump in the stats of like a lot of old people dying sooner than you would expect. But it was like it got up to like 38 degrees Celsius, which is what's that in Fahrenheit? A lot. 106, 110 Yeah, yeah. So that is, as you you put it earlier, hot. Yeah. We had that for a season. I think probably the hottest temperature I've been in was probably like mississippi in august type of thing oh god but like don't even say that shit but it's like the thing that gets me and a lot of people say this as well is, is like it's humidity that kills me like i can deal with heat dry heat that's i mean that's almost well, a cliche no but like. it but it's true like like i spent my summers going to see my well not all of my summers but some summers going to see my greek family in greece and it would have been like uh, around the temperatures like the way it was in london here and we didn't have air yeah. conditioning until this past summer was the first time i experienced air conditioning in greece and yet like i don't ever have memories of being very hot whereas like being in dc which is built on a literal swamp as our president likes to remind us being there even just like in the like high 20s which is obviously still hot i remember like being there in 2015 and trying to get like a f- uber or something and actually feeling enraged like if i don't get out of this heat i'm gonna lose my shit like really like over the top yeah exactly it's like it feels like being in some kind of like sump where all of the humidity is just kind of accumulated like you can feel the air like you can walk through it like you're walking through i don't know like goop like it's disgusting and so i think but like honestly i actually might say that the hottest i've ever felt is actually london this past summer yeah it's my early days call back We'll see you next time. Is that it? (laughs) Is that really it? That does not feel like a podcast to me. You've been listening to Skylines, the podcast from City Metric, the New Statesman City site. It was presented and recorded by me, John Anich, and produced by Nick Hilton. You can find Skylines every two weeks on iTunes, Acast, or whatever other app you use to get your, your podcast. And while you're there, why not leave us a nice review to, to tell other people we're here? It, you know, it really helps people discover the show. And I'm a megalomaniac, so the more people I can get listening to this, the better, really. We'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. The communion story is that when I was little, they 
poor in the Greek church, you all drink from the same gold chalice and the same gold spoon. And they put hunks of bread floating in the wine. And apparently I came back from taking communion to my mom and she was like, how did it go? And I was like, oh, it was great. I got a huge piece of chicken in my communion. And it turned out that I thought that the flavor of red wine soaked in bread was like hunks of chicken floating in the communion. So there you go. I think that's a fucking funny story. That usually gets a laugh. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. On Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.